0: This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular
1: disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
0: Welcome back Cardi Nerds. We are here for another amazing CNCR episode. And this time we have flown to Portland, Oregon. I'm here with Pooja Prasad and Kwa Win, and we are here to discuss a crazy case of cardiology. But before we do that, let's set the scene. Where are we going today, guys? Well, Dan, since Oregon is a city that's known for having
1: more than 80 breweries, uh, I think it's rightfully so that we should join into one of the breweries downtown, maybe some place like Ecliptic Brewery in which we can have a nice drink and also enjoy the food cart scene here as well.
0: Sounds delicious and sounds like it'll taste delicious too. So with that, let's just head on over and uh, what have you guys got for us? What kind of case are we gonna talk about today?
2: So uh, Kwan and I are really excited to present this case. We actually both worked on this case and we're going to tell you about the case firsthand. So uh, we're going to take you to the maternal cardiac clinic, which is where our case begins. Our patient is a 23-year-old pregnant woman who presented to the maternal cardiac clinic at 13 weeks gestation. Her history is notable for a mechanical aortic valve, specifically a 21-millimeter St. Jude mechanical valve, and this is her first visit since she became pregnant. About six weeks ago, when she found out she was pregnant, her anticoagulation clinic stopped her warfarin and placed her on subcutaneous enoxaparin, however, only with heparin monitoring and not with anti-10A monitoring. At her current visit, she was doing well overall and had no complaints. She'd actually been exercising regularly, and she really had no cardiac symptoms, no limitations, no exertional dyspnea. She had been compliant with her anoxapirin, hadn't missed any doses. However, she had not been taking aspirin as recommended previously. So going a little bit more into her history, she does have a bicuspid aortic valve, and her course was complicated by strep viridins at age 15, possibly in the setting of a dental cleaning. So she had strep viridin's endocarditis with severe aortic regurgitation, prompting a placement of a 21-millimeter St. Jude mechanical valve. In addition to this mechanical valve at age 15, she also had a patent foramen ovale closed at that time. Her medications prior to becoming pregnant included warfarin, which was targeted for an INR between 2 and 3, and Now, however, she was on inoxaparin as her anticoagulation clinic had switched her from warfarin to inoxaparin once she notified them of her being pregnant. Her allergies were notable for hives with ceftriaxone and penicillins, as well as a rash with vancomycin. Her family history was non-contributory and her social history was also non-contributory. She was a non-smoker, no significant alcohol use or illicit drug use. So, I guess just a, a few discussion points here. Um, whenever we have a young woman who requires a prosthetic valve, there's always a, a really rich debate about whether these patients should be getting a, a bioprosthetic tissue valve or a mechanical valve. And in this case, in our patient's case, given that she had the strep endocarditis at age 15, she was given a mechanical valve given the longer durability. However, of course, you know she had been counseled on the risk of mechanical valve thrombosis if she were ever to get pregnant. And specifically, she'd been seen in our congenital clinic, in our maternal cardiac clinic, and been counseled on the importance of avoiding unplanned pregnancies and avoiding estrogen-containing contraceptives due to the risk of valve thrombosis. And i just like to highlight something here, which is the ESC guidelines for the management of cardiovascular diseases during pregnancy. These were published in 2018, And I think this was really helpful because it gives us an idea of where to place our patient when it comes to her risks with pregnancy. And you can see with her that she was actually in the Modified World Health Organization Class 3. And so the class system goes from a Modified World Health Organization Class 1 to Class 4. And, you know, the Class 4 would be the highest risks patients. Those include patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension and severe LV dysfunction, montant circulation with complications. Our patient landed in a modified World Health Organization class 3. When it comes to an increasing intensity crescendo decrescendo murmur in a pregnant patient, the first thing we should think about is elevated flow from a hyperdynamic state, which we see in pregnancy due to expansion of blood volume. However, the second thing, of course, to think about, especially in a patient with a mechanical aortic valve, is increased left ventricular outflow tract flow. This can be from a variety of reasons, including panosin growth, patient prosthesis mismatch, obstructive mechanical disc motion, either from a vegetation or a thrombus, depending on the clinical scenario. So once I you know, heard this murmur, I knew that I needed some help from my fellow cardio nerd, Kwa Wen. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Wen to tell us more. He was the fellow in the CVICU.
1: Thank you very much, Buja. You're so kind. I knew when I had heard this sign out from Buja that this was going to be uh, quite an interesting case to take on. As Buja said, this 23-year-old pregnant female who had just arrived here to our institution, on a mission, a transthoracic echocardiogram was performed showing a peak gradient of 87 millimeters mercury and a mean gradient of 58 millimeter mercury. The Doppler velocity index was 0.24 with an acceleration time of 130 milliseconds. On her most recent echocardiogram two years ago prior to pregnancy, the peak and mean gradients were 24 and 15 millimeters mercury respectively. So we knew we had an issue on our hands with the increased gradients on this recent ethylcardiogram. In order to further identify and essentially to uh, nail our diagnosis, we opted to actually perform a fluoroscopy on this patient to confirm the diagnosis. Fluoroscopy demonstrated one immobile mechanical leaflet and one that was fixed. Precautions were taken to actually position the fetus outside the field of view and also shield the fetus with lead and also limit fluoroscopy time to really minimize exposure to scattered radiation for both the patient and the fetus as well. Prior to performing all this, we had several discussions with the patient regarding the best imaging modality uh, in order to confirm our diagnosis of prosthetic valve thrombosis. The modalities that were available to us was transesophageal echocardiogram, fluoroscopy, or cardiac CT. Ultimately, we roll out cardiac CT due to the high increased exposure to overall radiation uh, to both the patient as well as the fetus. As far as transesophageal echocardiogram, given her elevated gradient, the patient actually did not want to actually pursue transesophageal echocardiogram given the need for sedation. So with all that taken into consideration, we w- really wanted to just pursue that limited fluoroscopy time while trying to minimize radiation exposure. Fluoroscopy demonstrated one mechanical leaflet with decreased mobility, and the other one was fixed, thus confirming our suspicion for a prosthetic valve thrombosis. Once we confirmed the diagnosis, the patient was admitted to the cardiovascular intensive care unit, and she was started on a low dose ultra slow infusion of tissue type plasminogen activator, also known as TPA. One session consisted of TPA infusion at one milligram per hour for a total of 25 milligrams over 25 hours. After each TPA session, the patient was transitioned to an unfractionated heparin infusion with a targeted activated partial thromboplastin time or APTT between 1.5 and 2.5 times to control, for six hours. During the six-hour period in which she received unfractionated heparin infusion. We performed serial transthoracic echocardiograms to assess her valve hemodynamics in order to understand if there's any resolution to her flow gradients. If her flow gradients did come down or they did normalize, then we would pursue a repeat fluoroscopy. During this whole entire period, the patient was monitored for every two hours in this cardiac ICU to monitor for signs and symptoms of major complications, including ischemic stroke, hemorrhage embolic complications, and fetal loss. After having received five sessions and a total of 125 milligrams of TPA over eight days, the transthoracic echocardiogram finally showed a decrease in the peak immune gradients to 37 and 21 millimeters mercury, respectively, with an improvement in the DVI ratio to 0.53. To confirm the resolution of the thrombosis on the mechanical prosthesis, the patient then underwent a repeat fluoroscopy that demonstrated appropriate opening and closure of both mechanical leaflet discs. Afterwards, the patient was transitioned to daily warfarin with an INR goal of 2 to 3 with a heparin bridge and agreed to start aspirin 81 milligrams once a day as well. At two months' follow up, a transthoracic echocardiogram was repeated, demonstrating a peak and mean transvalvular gradient of 31 and 18 millimeters of mercury, respectively. A single living intrauterine pregnancy was also demonstrated on fetal ultrasound as well. There were no fetal anatomical abnormalities uh, identified. Then, fortunately, at 37 weeks and one day, the patient had a planned admission for transition of warfarin to unfractionated heparin prior to labor. The unfractionated heparin infusion was continued until six hours prior to her neuroaxial anesthesia and then she proceeded with uncomplicated primary low transverse C-section given the transverse fetal position. Afterwards, the patient was restarted on unfractionated heparin six hours after epidural catheter removal and then restarted on warfarin on post-operative day one. I would like to say that both mother and baby are healthy and happy.
2: In summary, we present here a case of a pregnant patient with a mechanical aortic valve whose course was complicated by prosthetic aortic valve thrombosis. There were a variety of reasons, I think, that triggered this, but Kwai, I'd be curious to think about what factors you think were most important in our patient developing mechanical valve thrombosis.
1: Fuji, that's a great question. Uh, you know, when I think about like the factors, especially in pregnant patients that poses for a higher risk of development of Mechanical valve thrombosis. I would want to think about the surface, the hemostatic factors that contribute to prosthetic valve thrombosis, in addition to the hypercoagulable state of pregnancy that presents a risk for women with mechanical valves.
2: Got it. Uh, another question for you, Quan. How can the guidelines help us when it comes to deciding how to treat these left-sided prosthetic valve thromboses in pregnant patients? Is there a specific recommendation?
1: Yeah, so both the recent ACCHA as well as the European guidelines for valvular heart disease gave a class one recommendation for treatment options of thrombose left-sided mechanical prosthetic valve thrombosis to be either a slow infusion low-dose fibrinolytic therapy or emergency cardiac surgery. One thing to take into consideration is cardiac surgery during pregnancy is considered extremely high risk uh, with high rates of both maternal and fetal adverse outcomes one of which includes fetal demise. Therefore, thrombolysis therapy is an attractive alternative option, especially in hemodynamically stable patients.
2: I find this really interesting because, you know, I remember everyone really shocked that we were using this approach and it can just show how there can be a lot of misinformation and lack of information when it comes to taking care of pregnant patients with cardiac disease and what options they have for therapies. I'd be curious then, Quad, to hear, how did your team approach shared decision-making with the patient? Of course, you know, considering the alternatives to not undergoing thrombolytic therapy.
1: Yeah, Puja. So we had a discussion between the patient, our cardiology team, as well as the maternal fetal medicine. And we were really only given two options on the table. One option was which was going to be cardiac surgery. And then the other option was going to be fibrinolytic therapy. So we always have this conundrum of surgery versus thrombolytic therapy. You know, for this patient, cardiac surgery and pregnancy, as you well know, is associated with a very high maternal and fetal mortality. Some people quote it as around like 6 and 30%, uh, respectively for mortality and also has a very high morbidity. Some quote it anywhere from 24 to 30%, respectively. And so that's why one of the more attractive options now then it's going to be thrombolytic therapy for this patient.
2: It seems like a big part of this case, especially initially, was making sure that we got the correct diagnosis. Well, I'd be curious to hear about, you know, what are the diagnostic modalities available to us for the evaluation of suspected prosthetic valve thrombosis?
1: Yeah, so the recent 2020 ACC/AHA guidelines for valvular heart disease gave a class one recommendation for evaluation of suspected mechanical prosthetic valve thrombosis. With using one of the four or a combination of one of the four imaging modalities: transthoracic echocardiogram, transesophageal echocardiogram, fluoroscopy, and/or multi-detector computed tomography, or CT. The idea behind these imaging modalities is to really assess valve function, leaflet motion, and presence and extent of thrombus. For this patient and for this particular case in general, uh, we opted to use transthoracic echocardiogram and fluoroscopy, uh, given our de- desire to avoid hemodynamic consequences of sedation for transesophageal echocardiogram and also to try to minimize the exposure that is seen in CT.
2: So qua, you know, I think that the anticoagulation here was definitely very key to the case and it made me really gain appreciation for all the hard work that our colleagues in the anticoagulation clinic do for our patients. Um, I'd be curious if you could talk a little bit about what are the anticoagulation, antiplatelet strategies and recommendations for pregnant patients with mechanical heart valves?
1: Yeah, Pooja, that's a great question. You know, in pregnancy, the maternal and fetal risks of anticoagulation strategies are all weighted and balanced against each other. The two main anticoagulation agents we have is warfarin and low molecular weight heparin. In pregnancy, warfarin therapy must be balanced really against a higher rate of valve thrombosis with low molecular weight heparin, and the optimal anticoagulation strategy has not yet quite been defined. Uh, When low molecular weight heparin is used, strict monitoring of anti-10A levels is recommended to really optimize anticoagulation and prevent complications. Uh, A recent meta-analysis actually showed that warfarin treatment throughout pregnancy was associated with the lowest risk of adverse maternal outcomes whereas low molecular weight heparin used throughout pregnancy was associated with the lowest risk of adverse fetal outcomes. For warfarin, we know that warfarinogenicity is highest during the first semester and further increase if doses are used greater than five milligrams per day. So really the risk must be really balanced against the higher rate of thrombotic complications with low molecular weight heparin. So overall, no anticoagulation strategy has been proven to be superior for both the mother and the fetus. Uh, therefore, once again, the shared decision-making process has to be optimal.
0: Puja, Qua, that was a masterclass in such a challenging case where a woman has this mechanical prosthetic valve dysfunction and we're trying to figure out what it is and the treatments can be risky and even the workup, you know, poses potential harms and it was really interesting to see how you guys navigated that by extracting as much data as you can from the patient, her story, your physical exam, and then Uh, required imaging to make the diagnosis and also track her therapy. So do you guys have any take-home points for all of us?
1: Yeah, Dan. One of our first uh, take-home messages is that thrombolytic therapy is a safe alternative to cardiac surgery and should be considered first line for treatment of prosthetic valve thrombosis in all patients, especially pregnant patients and patients that are hemodynamically stable.
2: The second big take-home would be the importance of preconception counseling in patients with mechanical heart valves, as well as the key of meticulous anticoagulation management, both when patients decide to become pregnant and also throughout pregnancy in, in order to maintain therapeutic anticoagulation and prevent mechanical heart valve thrombosis.
1: And finally, the evaluation for prosthetic valve thrombosis in the pregnant patient really requires a review of the patient's anticoagulation history and a careful choice of imaging modality to really confirm the diagnosis.
0: Well, team, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for taking us to our favorite brewery here. I've had uh, a few drinks and it's been quite a great discussion. And I'm so glad that this patient had a good outcome for her and her child. So kudos to all of you for delivering tremendous and amazing care. And thank you so much for going through this case with us and demystifying a case that would definitely have many perplexed. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you
2: excited to introduce Dr. Abigail Khan. Uh, we had the pleasure of working with Dr. Khan on this case. I was actually working with Dr. Khan in clinic and she was definitely involved in the complex decisions as Dr. Khan is an associate professor of medicine in our division of cardiology and she's both an adult congenital cardiologist as well as Having a specialty in cardio OB. So, welcome, Dr. Khan. Hi, I'm Abby Khan, and I am really excited
3: to talk about this case today. And first of all, I want to say that Kwa and Pooja have done such an amazing job setting up this case, taking care of the patient, um, and also talking about all the really complex aspects of the care of this patient. I am so happy to hear that Cardio Nerds is featuring a pregnancy case because pregnancy is an important part of what we do as cardiologists. Now, I'm an adult congenital physician, so I see a lot of pregnancy and heart disease in my practice. But even for people who are not specialized in this area, we really need to be vigilant about talking to women of childbearing age with cardiac conditions about their risk. And You know, if it's a situation where we're not prepared to do that, we need to refer them on to someone else. Why is this so important? Well, you know, first of all, it's always a tragedy when we have an adverse event in a pregnant woman, you know, for both her, for her baby and for her family. Second of all, you guys may have heard that maternal mortality is actually rising in the United States. And this is very different from other developed countries, right? So this is a big problem. This is not all due to women with pre-existing cardiac disease, but a lot of it is due to cardiovascular causes, either things that were pre-existing, risk factors that were pre-existing, or things that developed in pregnancy. So this is a major public health problem, and we as cardiologists really need to be on top of this. When I think about how I approach risk assessment and stratification in pregnancy, I tend to favor the modified WHO criteria. Of course, there are some great risk scores out there, so the CARPREG-2 score is a great example. The challenge with those specific risk scores, which will give you a percentage risk, is oftentimes they don't really predict the risk in our particular patient because the population of women with heart disease getting pregnant is so heterogeneous. And when you distill down the study population of something like Carprag, often the cases there weren't actually that many patients with your patient's particular situation or condition in the study. So for this reason and others, I tend to favor the WHO classification, which gives patients a qualitative risk. It gives us a point of discussion and oftentimes I will then augment that or build upon it with either the CARPREG score if I think it's applicable or with disease-specific scores from specialized studies. And when I think about women with mechanical heart valves, The data that I often present in addition to the modified WHO criteria is the study by Van Hagen et al. in 2015 that was in circulation, and it's from RoPAC, which is a multinational multicenter registry of women with heart disease and pregnancy. And this study was particular to mechanical heart valves. They had a little more than 200 patients in the study. And in that study, the risk of maternal mortality was about one percent, a little bit more than that actually, and the risk of valve thrombosis was just under five percent. So I do tend to quote that five percent risk to women who are either pregnant with a mechanical valve or thinking about getting pregnant. Now, of course, that risk could be a little higher in certain populations, right? Do they have another risk factor for stroke or valve thrombosis? Do they have left ventricular dysfunction? Do they have AFib? Is the valve in the mitral position versus the aortic? These are the, you know, the nuances that we need to take into account. And this is a bit of the art of it, right? Because again, with pregnant women and heart disease, there's never going to be a large study of women who are just like the patient in front of you, right? So you need to take the data that we have and do, do some integration and extrapolation to predict their risk. So in a patient like this, we would quote about a 5% risk of thrombotic complications, including a valve thrombosis, a stroke, stuff like that. So depending on how you look at that, that's a low risk or maybe it's a high risk, right? I think the most important thing to emphasize when we are counseling young women who need valve replacement, the risk is not so high that we should say, oh no, you should absolutely never get a mechanical valve but it's high enough that we need to take that pregnancy piece into account when we're doing the counseling, okay? Now, when the woman has the mechanical valve and is pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant, then that's the situation with when we're going to deal with what we have, right? So we're going to be talking about the optimal anticoagulation strategy. And as Quas so nicely said, you know, coumadin throughout pregnancy is going to be safest for the mother but because of the associated embryopathy, especially in the first trimester, it's less safe for the baby. When we see women before pregnancy or early in pregnancy, we do a lot of shared decision making. Most of my patients will elect to use Lovinox in the first trimester and sometimes throughout pregnancy with factor 10A monitoring. For patients with less than a five milligram per day dose of Coumadin, then Coumadin can be a strategy too. But most women, in my experience, are electing Lovenox. That's at our center. I think there's a lot of variability here. The most important key to this case is that the Lovenox needs to be with strict 10 monitoring. And unfortunately, that is where this case fell apart. And this is something so important. Whenever we see these patients, we need to be counseling them, not just, you know, you may need to think about getting off Coumadin, but also that there's going to be a ton of monitoring. And we also need to do a lot of education for things like anticoagulation clinics because they're not going to see cases like this very often, right? So we have this situation. We suspect it's valve thrombosis. What are we going to do? And qua. So nicely outlined the decision-making here. We have suddenly taken a patient with a well-functioning mechanical valve and made her a patient with significant aortic stenosis. And this is not a new acute load on the ventricle, right? So I'm pretty nervous that this is not going to be well-tolerated in pregnancy, that she might develop arrhythmias and heart failure. And she's so early, right? So we need to do something about this. And our options are low-dose TPA, for which there's a little bit of data, or surgery. Cardiopulmonary bypass in pregnancy is very risky. Um, the fetal risks are quite high. Not a ton of data out there, um, but you know that is the case, and probably especially the case in the first trimester. So when we have an option like low-dose TPA... You know, that was clearly the best option in our minds as cardiologists. Now, here's the good news. In all of this, we work super closely with high-risk OB or maternal fetal medicine. And when we brought this up to them, they said, oh, wow, yeah, we know about TPA. We use TPA in other situations. So they were able to do some really great counseling of the patient. And as you heard in this case, this this was a success. Subsequently, we've used the low-dose TPA here in one other patient That was a patient in which it wasn't entirely clear that the valve was thrombosed, but she was presenting early with heart failure symptoms and severe aortic stenosis, and we felt it was worth a try. In that case, um, the valve gradients didn't get better. She didn't have any complications from the TPA. But, you know, I I think we should assume that not every patient is going to have improvement in their gradients, but it's something worth thinking about for patients. I was also asked to touch upon radiation risk and the most important thing I would say about radiation is radiation exposure to the fetus. There is an increased risk of leukemia. I think that in general, the risk is not as high or not as prohibitive as we have often historically assumed. So the first thing I do when I have a radiation question is I talk to my MFM colleagues. And I also, in this case, talked to my cath lab colleagues. You know, exactly how much radiation are we thinking of giving this patient, right? And then we would compare that, for instance, to a gated CT. In this case, fluoro seemed like the better option. Now, of course, you guys probably know there are sometimes cases where, unfortunately, due to the valve position or other issues, we can't really confirm things on the fluoro. And in that particular case, we would probably have gone on to a CT with maternal counseling. But luckily, we didn't have to get to that point. So this is a really nice case because it highlights, I think, so many things. It highlights the importance of everyone across the health system who touches these patients, knowing that these patients are high risk. And, you know, any decision we make really needs to be discussed with an expert in pregnancy. It also highlights, you know, the risk of mechanical valves. And there are more women out there with mechanical valves wanting to get pregnant. So again, I'll emphasize the risk is not prohibitive, but it is significant. And we really need to be discussing with patients openly the risks of the pregnancy and also alternatives to pregnancy, which do exist if the patient is particularly high risk. And then lastly, I think cases like this, always highlight the importance of shared discussion and decision-making with maternal fetal medicine around things like radiation, around things like TPA, right? And caring for pregnant women with heart disease is always a collaboration. It's a team effort. Truthfully, that's a huge part of why I love this work. So hopefully this was helpful to you guys. Um, I really want to press upon you every time you see a young woman come into your office, you know, even any woman of childbearing age come into your office. We need to be thinking about these things, talking about these things, educating our patients, and also educating other providers who may touch that patient in the future. So thank you for asking me to present. Great job, Pugen Kwa. I hope you all have a great day.
4: Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Adriana Maris, intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy, Health Talzik, and student researcher at Yale Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardinards content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardinerts. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.